Welcome to A Smarter You, a University of Lynchburg podcast where ideas come together in new ways. I'm your host, Hannah Bellacci, and today we're talking about one of the biggest tragedies that the world has ever seen that resulted in the death of millions, the Holocaust. In history class, we're often taught of the sorrow that comes with the six million Jews who were executed or those held in concentration camps, but we're not as well informed about those who went into hiding and what their story is like. To give us a little insight, we have a special guest speaker, Ms. Helena Peabody, a Holocaust survivor and volunteer from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Hello. And to share a little bit more about the history during, the, during and after the events of World War II, we have Professor of History here at the University, Dr. Brian Krim, who's done extensive research on the Holocaust. Hello. To begin, I'd like to ask Helena, when did you begin to speak about the Holocaust? I began to speak about the Holocaust when I joined the uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum. When I came to this area and uh, I was first joined, I first joined a Holocaust survivor group, and then um, we went, started volunteering at the museum, and very slowly they tried to get us to speak to the public, and it took a while because I never spoke in the in public, so it took a while before I decided to do that. And I was very young when it started. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what was your life before the Holocaust? Uh, do you, what do you remember about your early childhood? Well, my early childhood was beautiful. I had, uh, my mother was very much in, in my life. My father was a dentist, he was busy. And my mother took me, taught me how to ice skate in the winter. Uh, she took me uh, on the river. We went um, boating. She was a champion swimmer. She loved, she also water skied, not me. And um, we had a beautiful time. I had my Shirley Temple doll, which I lost during the war. And uh, my mother used to sit with me and knit little outfits for her. She was a wonderful knitter. And so my life was perfect. Um, so you're, would you say that your family experienced any form of anti-Semitism before the war? I really don't know, because I was six and a half when the war broke out. So I don't remember much, and I did, wouldn't have understood, I don't think, at that age. So on your biography uh, on the United States Holocaust Museum website, it states that your father um, was sentenced to 20 years of Siberia right before the war. No. No? That's not correct. My father um, went, uh, ran away to Romania when they knew that the Russians were coming to our area. When, when they decided to split Poland into two and half to Germany and half to Ukraine, we were living in Zalaszczyki, which was going to be part of the Russian part. And um, they were the men, the young men were afraid they will cons be conscripted into the R Russian army. They were basing themselves on the First World War. Mm -hmm. And so my father didn't think that the women and children would be affected. And particularly, he didn't want to take us with him because uh, my mother gave birth to my sister two months before the war. So at that point, uh, my father went over, over to Romania. However, um, after the Russians came, um, things got quieter, and m the people who ran over in such panic uh, realized that maybe things are quietened down now. They arrested people. They, they, I think they, they took all the whatever they could get, you know, 
they're requi required to give all the monies and gold and silver like they usually do. And um, so they tried to sneak back over the river, which was frozen because it was so cold already. And uh, they were all caught because the Russians sealed the border at the time. And my father um, and the other people came sneaking back in. Unfortunately, the Russians had sealed the border and caught them all. And my father and the others were put on trial. And my father was told that he was a spy and was a dentist. And, um, he was, and he was sentenced to 20 years hard labor and sent over to Russia, to Arkhangelsk. Um, so how was it being away from him during the wartime? Well, my mother was left with the two children, so she had to take care of us. We had good friends, and they helped. Uh, we did not hear from my father at all for a long time, and my mother did the best she could, the two of us. My sister was very sickly. Um, I know she had a very hard time, but again, I was six and a half. Were you confused at all about what was going on? Not really. As far as I remember, they were very open. They talked in front of me, and I understood that they were, everybody was concerned. They didn't know what really the Russians were going to do, apart from what they'd done already. And in the meantime, um, my mother um, and us, I mean my sister and I, were considered um, a family of a... Uh, criminal, my father. So therefore, according to the uh, Russian law, we were supposed to be also going to Siberia, and we were already packed to go. But they didn't take us for some reason unknown. Uh, however, they threw us out of our house because it was bourgeois, you know, we couldn't have a house. So we were thrown out, and we went to a place called Twista, which was, I thought it was up the road, but apparently it wasn't that close. I, as I said, it could have been much further. It was just a little town in Poland, and um, we were told to, that's where we would be resting. We were not uh, imprisoned, but we were thrown out. In the meantime, I, we did hear from my father after about a year. He was allowed to communicate, and before the Germans came and took the rest of Poland, we had little communication with him, so we had an exchange of few letters. We knew where he was. He was in Arkhangelsk. And um, so we had, as I said, an exchange of letters. So you still knew of your father's whereabouts uh, during the time that he uh, was away from you and your fam uh, you and your mother and your sister. Yes. It was just a matter of getting back to him and making sure that everything was, it, like you both were safe during the time being of being apart. I'm not sure it was that. I mean, that he couldn't do anything. We were just in communication. At least we knew where he was, and then you know, and then we understood that uh, the Germans decided to take the rest of Poland, and the Russians just disappeared one night. And my mother packed us up, and we went back to our house. And then we awaited the Germans. When the Germans came. They made very strict laws, particularly for the Jews. Um, the first thing, the Jewish children were not allowed to school. Uh, we were not allowed to go to parks. We were we had much stricter rules as far as what what time to get, you know, to to be off the streets. 
and every Jewish person had to be working for the Germans. And if there wasn't a particular job, then they were told to clean the sidewalks. Uh, my mother, um, though, though she had the two children, she was told she would be the chief knitter for the mayor of the town, German, of course. He had lots of children, so that's what my, my mother was doing. And then they started um, taking people out for jobs, various jobs, and they had a list of everybody. Um, and then three, three, third or fourth time, um, suddenly they needed a, a rather group, large group of people for to bind trees for the winter. And um, people again collected there, wanted to help, and they were marched up. And there was over 600 of them that time. And they never came back. The one man that managed to escape afterwards told us what happened. They were all shot. And there was an open grave there that they were shot into. And so then um, they uh, threw us, the rest of the Jews, out. And we went to another place. And we knew that they were going to do the same thing. So we started looking for hiding places. Uh, my mother thought that there was no, no possibility, no change. No, char no chance to for anything. She was just terrified for the children. And, um, and that's just a short version. And she, uh, um, the, the, the last action that they took uh, when we were still there, they, uh, we split up. She knew the farmers there because we had been there during the Russian occupation. So she, um, we split up and both of us were very traumatized because we thought the other one was was caught. And in fact, my mother was thrown out into the field because uh, the, the people who were holding her were afraid because it was a penalty of death for that too. And so but by the time my mother came to get me, um, the uh, it was it was very late, and we knew that there was another action coming, and uh, they decided that. Um, that we were going to try to run away under assumed names. They bought false, false identities from a priest, and we had new names and birthdays, and everybody was, you know, my mother taught me my new <laughs> rights, and um, my mother decided to go to another town, and uh, that's when we ran away to a place called Yaroslav, the three of us we were caught on the way by a Volksdeutsch, sort of partially German, and he um, he pushed my mother very hard, and she <coughs> told me that she had no choice. She admitted to him that we were Jewish, and uh, he said he was going to take us to the Gestapo when we get there. He was going to accompany us to Yaroslav, and when we got there, my mother... I asked my mother, I said I didn't want to die, and my mother asked him to let me go, maybe that I could survive. But um, I said I'm not going. He, he, before even he answered, I don't I wasn't going to go alone. Um, in the end, um, he, as my mother talked, said to him that, please keep everything I have and I'll give it to you, but um, could you just let us go and try our luck? 
and uh, um, then she added, do you, why do you want us on your conscience? So at that point, he let us go. He took everything and left. But that's when we started living under the assumed names. And that's what, where your question is relevant here. She was trying to get more security by, by working for a German entity rather than otherwise because then you see she was looking for a, an identity that if in case they found us we could say look here we are we are we, we are working for the germans and that's what they needed they needed to know that if they caught you they said papers papers and if you showed that you <coughs> work for the germans they would let you go because they didn't expect you to be jewish I'd just like to say your mother sounds very strong-willed and brave oh, for her to go was, through she all was of that. She was a champion swimmer, very strong in many ways than one. And yes. But uh, back to my question, I, uh, because you guys were hiding under false identities, uh, did this impact your belief uh, in any way? Uh, did you have doubt about your Judaism at all while you were hiding under a fake identity? Remember my age. Um, I was not from a religious family. We were not religious. My mother's side was not very (coughs) religious. They were not observant. And so I did know I was Jewish. I was supposed to go to Hebrew school on Sundays and learn Hebrew. I knew how to to assign my name Hebrew for some reason. That stuck. (laughs) And uh, so I knew that I was going to be pretending to be somebody I'm not. I had no idea about the Catholic religion. I just knew to um, cross myself going in uh, in and out of church. I was learning about the Catholic religion. They taught it with a catechism, a little booklet, which I was lucky enough to be able to read since my father had taught me to read before the war. And I was able to catch up a little bit and I got away with it. I was a kid after all. And um, that was, you know, my 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 way of of helping and um, as far as being a Catholic, well, my mother realized that I may have some confusion because being Jewish and really not having anything to prove it by, she explained to me that we operate to the same God, but through different religions, and I'm Jewish, and we have to, of course, right now we have to be Catholic, and I had never quarrel with God. It's a very progressive thing for your mother to say. My mother was very special. Well, everybody's mother is, but mine was very special. She sounds like it. Um, I'd like to shift gears just a little bit and talk a little bit more about the academic perspective. Um, so, Dr. Krim, to give some historical input about uh, World War II, you've done some extensive research on the topic, and you've re- even written a couple of books. So uh, what can you tell us about the people that were displaced during World War II? Well, it's, it's a fascinating story uh, that Helena tells because, you know, for one, she was part of this uh, group of Polish Jews that were stuck on the Soviet side, yet um, later will have to suffer the experience under German occupation. And this is a result of the, you know, the Hitler-Stalin pact that academically we look at and say that there was a secret clause where, you know, when they did, right before the war began that the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany would divide Poland. And we look at that academically, but here we have the perspective of, of someone who had to live through it, even as a young girl. Her, uh, to have that, that perspective on the ground level is, is really unusual and, and fascinating because we now know 
really how it worked in real life to have this sudden event. And from listening to you, listening to you last night and, and now today, you know, you were living in a state of constant confusion and, and ignorance and fear because you don't know what's happening next. Whereas from our perspective now, we can recreate every aspect of the Holocaust day by day, but we can't understand what it's like when you have no idea what's coming next. And so this perspective is first uh, very uh, enlightening and part of why it was a great uh, event last night. Um, now, after the war, I, I got a sense that you were uh, in a displaced persons camp. Is that right? Af in Germany? No. When, or were you in Poland in a camp? That, uh, no, or oh, what happened after the war? Well, first of all, we knew because we got uh, information from the people we left behind that my father had sent a letter through the Red Cross mm -hmm. that he was safe with his sister in Palestine. Right. And therefore, we knew that he was alive and free. We couldn't get in touch with him, but as soon as the um, Germans lost the war, um, then my mother started putting out the, and looking for him, and she found him. Mm -hmm. And he sent my cousin from Palestine to try and get us out. He said, he, th he told, my sister told him that, uh, for, he, she didn't know, of course, but she said to him that he was a very nice man, but he's <coughs> Jewish. <laughs> and that was the Polish mm -hmm. thing. They always recognized Jewish people. That's why my mother was so frightened all through the time, mm -hmm. because she knew that they were very good at that. I have a feeling that the people who, the lady who took us in, had some suspicion, but she wanted to save the children, and she wanted to save my soul. She made it very clear that, you know, I had to go to, um, to church and to go to communion, and uh, I gave her all credit for it. And I thank her for it, but but that was, I think, the reason I'm guessing. Unfortunately, she died when I was wounded. Mm -hmm. um, she died. She was killed, and she was in the kitchen, and mm -hmm. the roof fell on her, and you know, and she died. But I have a feeling, my sister, uh, of course, didn't know, and and she she denied that she was Jewish. She said she didn't have horns or a tail. <laughs> so uh, that was one thing. Um, and the lady who, next door who took us in because the apartment, the so-called apartment where we were living, completely destroyed, um, the neighbor took uh, took my mother in. I was in the hospital for two months with my hand, so um, <laughs> so she she uh, was said to me that she remembered some little things like that they asked her she once they went shopping and somebody asked her outside the store, you Jewish right? You you can tell us now. And she said, you know, same thing. Look at me, do I have horns? <laughs> so, so she didn't believe it. <laughs> um, that's, that's quite, uh, I mean, it's very humorous looking yeah, back on it yeah, now. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, she was very upset when she... <laughs> she found out that she was Jewish. <laughs> yes, of course she was, yeah. yes. Um, so you mentioned about need, uh, going um, to... Communion, I think it is. Communion. Communion on Sundays. Yes, it's um, like, yes, yes. As part of hiding your identity. Yes. Um, did you go to school at all during this time? Yes, the under the under the Germans, the Polish kids, as long as the you know, 
the Polish kids as long as the Germans were, we were allowed to go to school for two hours and one hour was for re religious studies. That's when the priest gave me the catechism and, uh, and unknowing that I would save my life probably by learning about it and uh, and I learned and then I I don't know what else we learned I don't remember but uh, knowing how to read really was helpful so you were still able to uh, continue your studies essentially while well, you were well there were not really studies much the kids didn't know how to write or read or I don't remember I remember the Catholic studies because it was so important because mm -hmm. I was so terrified that they'd find out after go to to uh, confession, and that was really something for the first time. I had nobody to ask, and so you know, I said so. I, I just sort of went back and thought about it, and I just said, if I tell them, I did a few lies, and I don't know <laughs> <laughs> what else I tell them. Got a few hail marys, and uh, and that was it, and that's how I continued. I, I admire your bravery to. Like remember and study this religion. I didn't want to die. It's a, it's really an admirable effort on your behalf. It's my mother, as well as your mother's. So after a few years after the Soviet Union liberated uh, Jaroslav, uh, Jaroslav, uh, Jaroslav, sorry, um, your family immigrated to the United Kingdom. Correct? Well, first of all, my father turned out to have been uh, one of the prisoners, political prisoners that Stalin let out. There was a, uh, 1945, there was a Yalta conference where Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin got together, and they, the Stalin agreed to let the political prisoners out so they could help in the fight against German, Germany, or Germans. And um, that's why, that's why I, I learned that. And my father, uh, therefore, was part of the Polish unit, which is part of the British Army, and therefore we had the right to go to England. And that's why we went to England quite fast. Sort of an expedited immigration process after the Yeah, war. there was, I didn't, we didn't need to wait for a visa or anything, we just went straight off to England. In fact, my father tried to, to keep us in Italy for a while, uh, where there was a nice camp there. Um, but, um, you know, because he said that the weather was so nice and we were so worn out. Um, particularly my mother, who, by the way, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, still when I was in Poland. And uh, I always think it's because of what how she got upset about my hand. And so she had to have an operation. And so she was also completely worn out. So my father thought we would stay a little bit in Italy to recover. The weather was wonderful, the food was wonderful, you know, we were all starved. And um, but of course they sent us immediately, so <laughs> typical. So we went to England, and we were in a very nice officers' camp in Magal, which is near Liverpool. And uh, after I think less than a year, everybody rushed off and bought a house because we all wanted a home. And uh, in our case, we went to London, and that's where we settled. Uh, you mentioned yesterday at your lecture that you uh, you took up table tennis. Yes, I wanted to play tennis. That was my love, 
still is. Mm -hmm. I watch it now. <laughs> um, yes, I, I. But table tennis was available everywhere, and it was sort of similar, and uh, it was easy. And I needed something. I didn't realize, you know, unconsciously, I, I needed something, and I found table tennis was wonderful. And there was a Maccabi club that was a Jewish youth club near where our house was. Was just a, uh, you know, it happened that way. It wasn't intentional, but. I started playing a lot, and I have a, a, um, a sort of a little talent in that direction. I would have loved to play tennis. But anyway, this is sort of similar, and um, um, I, I spent my evenings doing that and going to school and then to work. And uh, eventually with that, I was sent, when Israel was created, I was sent to the Maccabee Games which were created by Israel, which is like a Jewish Olympics every four years. Um, so would you say that playing table tennis and sort of uh, involving yourself in sport is a way uh, that you moved forward? Yes. Let, let, think about it with my hand as it was as a young kid. Playing table tennis meant that my eye was on the ball nowhere else. You see? Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. Indeed. So we didn't have uh, didn't have any kind of social help or anything like that, but that was it, and so that did a lot for me, and I got a lot out of it. And then I was sent to Israel, and I played in the '53 Maccabee, and then '57. I when I got back, my mother had passed away in '56, recurrence of cancer, and so '50. 57, I decided to stay for a year in Israel. Uh, and you mentioned that you played you played in another Maccabee Games in 57? Yes. And I won the Israeli championship in 1959. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. You must and have then I retired. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good time to retire when you win. Yes. <laughs> right. So when you're when when you're champion, you're, yeah. You quit while you're ahead. Yeah. Um, but you must, you must have picked up table tennis very quickly then. I did, but don't forget that the standards don't change today. I can't even watch it. It's so fast. <laughs> you, you look at tennis, how it changed. Yeah. The power you have to have today. So. There's a lot of competition with how the world has changed. Um, so you moved to the United States in 1968, and you mentioned that it, your initial plan had only been uh, to be there for a year. Um, but what pushed you to make the decision to go to the United States for that year? Well, you know, we, my husband and I were both working for the American Embassy in Tel Aviv. So we had this possibility to just apply for a visa. We didn't have to line up for overnight to get the visas. So my husband said, you know, before the, um, what, the, the what do you call it, when you have the numbers, the quotas, the quotas, before the quotas came into being. So, so uh, you know, we could go for a year and see how it goes. He, he was sent to the United States by himself because he was working for the U United States, um, you know, uh, USIS. Uh, U.S. Information. Yes, yes, that's right. And so, so he and he fell in love with, with America and he said, let's go and stay for a year. Now, my son was uh, six years old, so he went straight to school, 
decided he didn't know he didn't know Hebrew anymore, because you know children will only speak the language they hear around them. Mm-hmm. So as long as we were in Israel, I had to speak Hebrew to him. But as soon as we came to the United States, he would only say yes or no in English, and he would not talk to me in public at all. <laughs> and so, yes, so that's why. And so he started school, and we just had moved too many times. And of course, we go back. We go back visiting. So my 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 yearly thing is to go first to Tel Aviv, London, and then home. That's the way we go. My sister is in England. So, how is it to go back uh, to Poland, Tel Aviv, and visit these places that you've been before? Which one? <laughs> um, po- Poland. Yes. Very painful and not safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tel Aviv, wonderful. I wish I was there. <laughs> um, and how was it to visit your sister in the United States? Um, the United well, Kingdom? there are certain things that are attractive, you know. I'm very torn into pieces. Uh, I have bits and pieces of me uh, in all these places. Um, I must say that that England was it's different now to what it was when we first came. We were the, cheap, the poor immigrants. We were the lowest of the low at that point. Uh, and um, it, they were very kind to us, but there was no love. You know, we were so, at least I needed love. And, you know, when I came to Israel, there was arms were open. And that, that, that remains with me to this day. And well, the English are much cooler people. You know, they don't they don't do that love bit. So I felt that uh, I owe them a lot. I admire them, but I feel more close, closer to being to a place where I'd never <coughs> been before and that I visited out of the blue, which the suddenly I felt I belonged in. And I can't explain that. So would you say you feel more at home? Yes. Yes. Strangely enough. It's it's a good thing to be surrounded by people of the same culture who understand well, uh, the background. Well, they are the same culture. They came from all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. and yet uh, they were the same culture. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Krim, I'd like to ask you, uh, how, do, how did di- different countries respond to the humanitarian mm-hmm. crisis, uh, making homes for victims or other means? Yeah, and generally you have to say that the world failed European Jews before and during the war and 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 to some extent even after the war. Luckily, uh, Helena's father, with his status, was able to get them to to safety. But you had uh, the surviving remnant of European Jews largely placed in what were called displaced persons camps, and in many cases, these same these camps were were concentration camps before. Uh, during the war, I mean, but in Germany, for example, they they basically reopened concentration camps, and while they were much better than they were, they were housing up, you know as many as three million European Jews uh, in the country that tried to exterminate them. And while they were, and it was for their safety, and the ability for them to get out and either emigrate to a place like Israel or Britain or the United States was the luck of the draw, and it was very unfair. And the United States, you have to be, be said, was was not a leader in making this a, a, a reality. It took a lot of pressure, um, and uh, the Rose, the Truman administration, did eventually uh, increase the quotas to allow Jews to enter the United States, and many of went to places like Latin America and even 
China, um, uh, and of course Israel, once it's established, became a destination. But it was a very sad story because you would think that the problems of the Holocaust is over, so to speak, yet things in many ways uh, remain stagnant for Jews who were lucky to survive. Um, and one of the more infuriating things relating to you know the book I just wrote about a German scientist who came to the United States is that the same quotas that were used to um, keep Jews out of the country were uh, actually used to bring in former Nazis into the United States. 1,500 at least uh, German scientists who were all Nazi party members came in on quotas that were supposed to be for Jews who had survived the Holocaust. And that was done illegally, even according to our own State Department. And it was uh, just one example of many where um, U.S. policy had failed, I think, the, uh, at least initially, um, the Jewish community that was remaining in Europe. So it, it's, a, it's a great story that Helena had this, um, though her father had this status, but so many others languished in these camps, in some cases for years, more than they, you know, longer than they had to. Uh, and that was, um, you know, a, a part of the story that I think the museum is, a much, is doing a very good job of telling now, but it's not a very uh, shining moment in our own history, even with the role we played in liberating Europe. And in talking about bringing over uh, Nazi scientists uh, through the quotas that were supposed to be used for um, displaced Jews, um, was that a part of Project Paperclip? It was. Um, yeah, Project Paperclip was the intelligence operation that was uh, technically approved by President Truman, but it was in fact kind of a rogue operation where uh, the U.S. intelligence community, usually Army intelligence, located scientists they thought could help with the development of weaponry um, and other you know, new technologies and to bring them over to the United States for what they called exploitation. But part of the deal was that if you come to the United States, you'll get citizenship, uh, which is a very, you know, as we see for Jews trying to make it to America, an extremely difficult and worthwhile enterprise. And it was done behind the backs of Congress, the State Department, and even President Truman himself to offer these conditions. And so you had a very embarrassing scenario where you had, for a, a number of these scientists who were uh, war criminals, are living in the United States as citizens, and only decades later, in some case, say cases, are their stories uh, unveiled. Um, and it goes to this ends justifies the means mentality of the Cold War that allowed these sort of operations to go unchecked. Uh, and so my book is about uh, not only that operation, but the people who resisted it, which included a number of prominent American Jews, uh, including uh, State Department lawyers who, who felt it to be extremely unfair that we're keeping displaced persons out of the country to allow what, what are in effect, if not war criminals, card-carrying members literally of the Nazi party. So it's not a very good reflection of the United States essentially trying to help clean up the mess that the Holocaust right. created, would you say? It's very, contra well, the United States is full of contradictions and, and uh, this was a policy that was uh, done to deal with they saw as a growing Soviet threat. And the idea was that no matter what the moral or ethical considerations, that took precedence over um, the, the, you know, the human rights of, of people who were in, in desperate need. And it wasn't until 
I think years later that this was rectified, um, and and it took a lot of publicity to to shine a light. And usually, you know, sunshine is the greatest disinfectant, and historic historians uh, can can accomplish that. But it, and it took a well before people like me, but uh, actual bureaucrats at the time to to um, to, to shine a light on this policy and correct it, or at the very least uh, expand it to include all these displaced persons who, who uh, only years later get to come to the United States. We've talked a lot about the travesties that come about during World War II and as a result of the Holocaust. Um, but Helena, what do you think is the most important um, aspect for people to remember about your experiences or what the most important takeaway is? Well, to learn from the past prevented in the future, the repetition of such terrible happenings. And this is what I was saying to the children and to students. And I said, you know, this is what you, it's your job now and you have to work hard together and try to prevent this from happening. And it's up to you. So it's up to it's up to us to fight against indifference, hatred, racism. Uh, is there anything that you feel is important for students and young people like me today um, to sort of take from your experience and use it to fight those sort of things today? And also share it with others, as, as you're doing by doing the podcast. I think the education is the key to all this. So with education... Um, we can combat against indifference and make the world a more loving place, so to exactly. speak. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Helena, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's very important. Thank you so much. Um, and, of course, Dr. Krim, thank you so much uh, for shedding some light on some history for us. Well, thank you for including me. Yes. And, and to all our listeners, we're glad that you came. Is there a Lynchburg professor or alum you'd like to hear on the podcast this season or a topic you'd like us to tackle? Email ucm at lynchburg.edu to let us know. Until next time. Tune in next time where we talk about the rise of Skywalker, the end to the Star Wars saga, and fan theories that may or may not be apparent in the movie.